Let me start us off with another section of Psalm 119. Uh, each, they're called strophes, the little sections, they correspond to each letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And they're about, they're about the law, they're about the Word of God, appropriate as uh, we're looking at teaching. And this one begins, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts and your righteousness give me life. Let's pray. We are thankful this side of the cross, Lord, that that is exactly what you have accomplished for us. In your righteousness, you've given us life and we have the righteousness of Christ. And may that be something that we never get over. Just the beauty and the delight, um, the finality. When you said it's finished, how that applied to us. And we are grateful. Tonight, as we think about teaching, this is a church that prizes and values teaching, and we want to do it well in whatever venue in which we teach. If it's at home over the kitchen counter with a, a child, if it's here in church, if it's in a small group, if it's in a school classroom, um, wherever we are, Lord, help us in this endeavor. Uh, we want to do it well, and we look to you for that uh, as being taught by you in order to teach others. We want to be very conscious of where um, the ability and the skill set and the gifting comes from. So we thank you and we ask you to bless this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is how to teach if you've wandered in and wondered, uh, are you in the right place? Last week, I offered really what amounts to more of a description and a description in an economy of words than a definition of teaching. And we talked about teaching as caring about the explanation you're giving. And of course, that leaves a lot out. Uh, obviously, we want to we want to connect with our learners. We want there to be a sense of uh, not just information download, but personal interaction. I told you last week that uh, as, a, as an axiom, uh, teaching where the learner hasn't taught is not teaching. And while that sounds unfair, it really does underscore the responsibility of the teacher to endeavor to communicate in a way that's understood and not misunderstood. And we'll talk about that tonight. Both are important. And obviously we want content. We want our teaching to have substance. So connecting through content, it isn't part of the one-liner description that I've offered last week, but it's very much part of teaching. And so we, we took that description, teaching is caring about the explanation that you're giving. And we took those as three components, uh, caring and explanation and giving. And we walked through these and they're purposefully broad and we tried to get a little bit of definition. And then last week, I also addressed the 
gifting and competency uh, matrix, how those things fit together. Did that briefly. Basically said, you don't have to be spiritually gifted to teach. You don't have to have the, the gift to uh, engage in the skill. Teaching is a learned skill. I think gifting is really necessary for long-haul teaching. And that's because when you are with gifted teachers, typically you find that a store comes with the gift. And so teachers can go through dry periods and, and not know what they're going to teach. But with uh, gifting, it usually means there's always something there to teach from. The gifted teacher can take a few items in the cupboard, as it were, and, and turn out a meal. It may not be gourmet, but it'll be something. And that's usually how the gifting aspect works. But again, one doesn't have to be gifted uh, to teach. One does have to develop the skill, and there are ways to do that. I think I told you last week that, you know, for me, the aspirational plumb line is that I want to teach others in the way that I myself want to be taught. And that actually helps me. Because um, if I had to listen to me, would I want to hear what I'm saying? I don't necessarily come at every teaching with that thought, but I think that's a good thing to keep in mind. There is um, the story was told around Dallas Seminary, and Lynn's a fellow Dallas grad. Uh, you may have heard this about the pulpit somewhere. I don't know if it's, I heard this was in Europe. I heard it was in New England. I heard it was in California. I'm sure it's, it's you know... One of those things that being unattributed, who knows where it comes from. Apparently there's a pulpit somewhere that has a uh, plaque on it uh, that says, what in the world are you about to do to these people? And I think, I think there's a lot to that. What in the world are we about to do when we stand behind a lectern like this or we sit on the floor with children uh, or we otherwise stand in front of people? young or old or in between, and we talk to them about God's Word or about a certain subject, a certain uh, skill or something that you're passing along. What are we doing to them? I told you our focus tonight would be stickability. Stickability um, is really just about sticky teaching. How to teach in ways that stick with the learner. That what you're putting out there, it sticks. It sticks in, it sticks with, it sticks to, whatever preposition uh, works there for you. There are some communication practices and techniques that um, make the messaging more effective. And there are other things that detract from teaching. You've got to watch, I'm not going to... Uh, I'll just say this about ticks and quirks. Everybody's got their little idiosyncrasies. I remember in seminary, we, um, you know, it's, it's academic and it's classroom and we would critique each other preaching. And we had this one guy who the entire sermon, he did this, the entire classroom message, and he was completely unaware that he was doing it. But for the duration of the time that he taught, this happened the entire time. And so when he sits down, the professor says, what did you notice about that sermon? And everybody goes, okay. <laughs> and the guy goes, really, really? Yeah. 
I remember when I was told, uh, when I was teaching in Franklin, my church there south of Nashville, um, as an associate pastor, and, and the senior pastor was very generous. He let me preach twice a month, and, and we really shared the pulpit, and I've always been appreciative of that because I think um, that was God used that to, to help me learn and grow. But um, I remember uh, the wife of a friend of mine saying, you got to quit swaying. She said, you're making me seasick. She said, I'm watching you and you're up there just kind of doing this all the time, you know. Really? Really? And I asked Lynn and she goes, yeah, now that she mentions it, you do sway a lot. So you have to kind of take the linebacker advice, you know, uh, head on a swivel, uh, hips or not, you know, you, you stay in a, in a position and I've never been a real movement uh, guy that walks around the platform. I'm much more uh, tethered to my notes. But nevertheless, there's little ticks and idiosyncrasies that we have to be aware of. And, and the good thing is just to ask a friend. Is there anything about my delivery, my manner, that's off-putting? Am I doing something? Uh, the uhs and the ahs. We all do it, but some people do it a lot. Uh, uh, uh. Ah, 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 after ever, almost everything they're saying. It's almost inescapable. You're going to have a little bit of that, but as much as you can, try to pare that down because it really does affect the way people hear you if uh, you um, always, uh, you know, uh, hey, you're always filling in. Don't do that as much as you can. So, these are a few things uh, about communication practices, see I just did it then, that make teaching more effective and less effective. Next week we're going to discuss Hendrick's book, so try to have this read by next week. It's not a hard book to work through, that shouldn't take you a lot to move through it. I'll give a guided discussion to this next week, but this will be the, the main point. And then at the end, and the fourth week is not going to be October 10th. Again, it's going to be October 17th because when I planned this, I didn't realize I was out of town the 10th. We're going to each one give a two-minute lesson. Last week I was kind of wavering between three and two, but I think with the size of the group here, we'll just do two. And I'm going to give you tonight a guide, some help for that toward the end, and we'll come back to it next week. Again, I'll give you the same handout next week. If you forget to bring it, I'll have extra copies. And this will be to help you put together. What I really want you to see is that you can say a lot in two minutes. You can say more than you think you can. Your text is going to be Psalm 117. It has two verses. Everybody's going to take Psalm 117 as your text. And your job will be to develop a main idea out of that that you want to communicate one or two, I wouldn't do any more than two, big ideas, and then you'll present that. And there won't be a lot of time for assessment as we move through, but you'll have two minutes. So don't take one and say, I yield the balance of my time. Uh, don't do that, and don't take three, because I'll call you at two. I'll say time. I'll be the official timekeeper. But you can say 150 words probably in about a two-minute span. When you write out 150 words, that's a couple of paragraphs. So be selective. 
this will help you to sort of pare down as well, essentially what you're trying to convey. And I also want you to see that you can say meaningful things in a brief window of time. You don't have to take 45 minutes to an hour. Typically in a Sunday school class, that's your teaching window, and that's fine. But we're going to do a two-minute lesson. So I'll give you that toward the end tonight, and we'll come back to it next week in discussing the book. Tonight I'm going to give you seven sticky practices. That's what we'll call them. Stickability. <clears throat> Excuse me. And as I give you each one, I'll also give you its abuse. So we'll get the practice commended, and then we'll get what to stay away from, the abuse of that practice, as it were. Your teaching is going to have better stickiness if you adhere to these practices, if you incorporate them, if you employ them. And these are inspired by a book called Made to Stick. It's by Chip Heath and Dan Heath, I believe they're brothers. And they talk about ideas, ideas that stick in advertising and marketing, but also in teaching. And they talk about finding the core of your idea and then the best ways to get that across. Well, the core of your idea in teaching and preaching is the big idea, is usually what it's referred to as. What is it essentially that I'm really trying to communicate here? I got a lot of things I want to say, but what essentially am I trying to communicate? And once I know what it is I'm trying to communicate, how best do I get that across to you? Who you are a hearer, but I, I want you to be a learner. And so how best do I get this across? And the first way of these seven that we're going to list is simplicity. Simplicity. A couple years ago now, two elders took me to breakfast to present me with some evaluation. I get an annual review, and that's always given by the chairman and the vice chairman of the elders, and that's who these were. And I thought that my preaching would be a strong point in the evaluation. In fact, I went in the evaluation not even thinking that anything about preaching was going to come up. However, they were hearing at that point in time from more than a few people in our church had pulled them aside and said, you know, affirmingly, I like Cole, but he talks over my head. I don't always follow what he's trying to say. I get that it's, you know, thought through and it's obvious that he reads, but, uh, you know, I'm just lost. And there were more than a few people that were, that were feeling that. And at first you hear that and your ego flares. And uh, your ego whispers to your heart, well, you know, there always are people who don't understand what good preaching is. And you just have to kind of endure them, you know. And so I went away from that evaluation, kind of full of myself that way, frustrated, you know. But the Lord was kind to me. In that, he showed me, you know, this review is from me. The thing is from me. There's an Old Testament line that God says that. And as I got to reflecting on it, praying about it, and thinking about how I knew these men were for me, I realized these elders were telling me something I needed to hear, and they were serving me, if not saving me, in a way. Because once people render a complaint, it's almost like um, an hourglass turns over. 
and the sands represent their goodwill. And you've got about as much time when those sands fall through to the bottom hourglass to act or the goodwill is over. And so uh, it was a fair critique. And I think the Lord was directing me to make some adjustments. And so about three years ago, I made some adjustments. I, I began to use more of an outline approach to my sermons, whereas before my, my sermons were much more of just, here we go, we're off and running, and maybe you'll pick up something you can use, but that's not my great concern. My concern is to be clever and intellectual, and, and for you to go away saying, well, I, that was really good Bible teaching, and he didn't tell me anything that I didn't already know, and there weren't a lot of platitudes in that, and there was a lot of intellectual pride and just insecurity and stuff going on in me in that. I've, I've, I've confessed this to the church, so this isn't new. But I tried to make my communication simpler without giving anything up for substance. And so what I did, if, you'll, if you've listened to me preach for a long time, you know, somewhere in there I started using two points. And two points became a way of very simply saying, here's what this sermon is about. Here's what I hope you take away from this message. I'll try to develop these points, and maybe as we develop them, there might be some things that not everybody treks with, but as much as it depends on me, here's uh, explicitly what I'm trying to say in terms that everyone can understand. And that has seemingly gone better, I think. Um, in my case, I stopped trying to make up words and and uh, be clever and just all these things I was doing that, that really were more or less insecurity. Now I realize as I look back on it, I just needed to get to a place where I was comfortable in that pulpit and, and stop trying to prove to everybody that a boy from Hamilton uh, belongs here kind of a thing. And it, and, it, and it relaxed me. So that critique that I was given was, was very useful. What I had realized is that I was making my hearers work in ways that do not facilitate learning. Learning is work, and all learners have a work to engage, the same as a teacher has the work to engage, but the work of the learner is not to try to figure out what the teacher is saying and fill in the gaps that the teacher is, is leaving there. I'll never forget, um, when I was in high school, 11th grade chemistry, Cully Hartzell was our teacher. And he was just kind of an odd duck uh, sort of fellow. But the whole class was failing. And my dad got wind of my grades. Small town, people talk, people were talking. You realize the whole 11th grade is failing chemistry. Mr. Hartzell, nobody likes him. Everybody hates this guy. You know, all the kids hate him. And he went to see Mr. Hartzell. And my dad came home frustrated. And he said, you know, sitting with your teacher today, basically I, I realized that um, this man is not a very good teacher. <laughs> I said, well, Dad, that's kind of what we've all... <laughs> he said, it's obvious that guy understands what he's talking about. He gets it. He knows chemistry, but he doesn't know how to teach it. He doesn't know how to convey it. That's why you're all failing. And he's... And he said, I simply went and tried to tell your teacher, I, I think the reason the kids are failing is they're not getting it. They're not understanding. And he said, your teacher had a completely different view. They're not, they're not studying. They're not learning. They're checked out on me. This guy was a very, just, you know, he was a brilliant chemist. 
but he couldn't communicate it in a way that any of us could pick it up. And the, and the proof was in our failing. Even the good students were failing. This was a scandal in our hometown, you know, because, I mean, the, the girls in the class that do well, they were crying, you know, because they were failing Mr. Hartzell's tests. I think it got better if memory serves. But learners do have a work to do, and yet the work of the learner is not to piece it together. The work of the learner is to live with the teaching, to receive it, to try to put it into practice, and simplicity will help the learner with that. Simplicity helps a lot. If you can, even if you have a complex subject, if you can say on the front end, this is what I want you to understand, then the least common denominator listener that you have in the room is going to, to trek with that if it's simply put, this is what I hope you get from this. And then you go to your explanation and illustration and all of that. Now, it's possible to be too simple, and that becomes simplistic, or simplism. There's actually uh, a ter term of that, and that's the abuse of simplicity. I told you each one of these, I'll give you the abuse of it. The abuse of simplicity is simplism. That's telling people what they already know. Telling people what they can already figure out for themselves or otherwise stating the obvious but treating it like it's some kind of an insight. A lot of times people will, will teach the Bible and they'll just more or less regurgitate what's already in the text. They're just telling you what's you're already reading it. I, I get it. Now, now help me understand this or, or, or show me how this works. That's what teaching is trying to facilitate. An explanation I see the text. I can read it myself. But you've got teachers who, who just um, keep stating the, the obvious. Simplicity is knowing what you want to communicate in as few words as possible. And choosing the simplest words. When you've got a choice between a complex word, and I'm, I'm bad about this because like moths are drawn, drawn to lights. I am drawn to big words. I love them. I see a big word and it's like, oh, that's a great word. That's perfect. That's, that word gets it. When a simpler word would do. One of my friends calls it the 2 a.m. test. He said if your message is simple and somebody could conceivably wake you up at 2 a.m., arouse you from deep sleep and say, what are you about to do to these people in the morning? And you can say, well, I'm going to tell them this. You know, that's the 2 a.m. test. Do you understand Simply what you're trying to communicate in simple terms, you can develop it. You can spend the rest of your teaching time developing a big idea, uh, even a complex idea. But try to state in as few words what's at the core of your teaching. What is the point here? Why are we looking at this and what's going to come out of it potentially if you if you learn, if you hear what I'm talking about? In this, think proverbially, the Proverbs, the biblical book of Proverbs, marvelous. They state truth very simply in an economy of words. Again, you can develop points, but the ability to state succinctly and simply what you're trying to say, that makes, that makes it sticky. These are stickability practices. Simplicity is one. 
just quick story. I heard a sticky speaker in Florence on Sunday, mine and Ken's uh, town. We were there seeing our daughter and the church where she goes. I'll tell you later what the church was. Uh, good communicator, except I, I didn't find his message substantively helpful. I've heard this guy before. It's actually a, a very large church um, in, in really the, the, well, I'm not going to say any more than that. And the reason is, the reason I didn't find it substantively helpful is because he took a very difficult subject, people's suffering, and he, and he took a solutions approach. He took this, if A and B and C, then, then you'll come out with D on the other end. When simplicity goes simplistic, just follow these simple steps. Even in these horrific things of life, and you'll be okay. It's not helpful. It can even be harmful. A solutions approach, that's what I called it with the kids. They asked later, Dad, what, what, what was it about that sermon you didn't like? And I said, well, he took a solutions approach to handling troubles. He was giving me stages for moving through the tough things. He meant to be helpful, but he boiled everything down to, I've got to make this choice. I have this big choice I've got to make. And the choice is whether I'm going to trust God and let him do what he does in these things, or I'm not. And I'm thinking, you know, I don't know that it's always that stark. I don't know it's always that matter of some necessary choice that I have to make. And even when I can see God using a difficulty in my life for good, I still don't want the difficulty. The teacher I heard Sunday never really dealt with having to linger in something hard, having to live with it, the ache ongoing, because he was so over-interested in tying a bow on pain and, and giving you this answer, helping you get from point A to this point B, that uh, he was just giving me a solution where everything gets resolved. Now, to be fair, he did say at one point, you know, not everything's always going to be resolved, but it was a washout because the drivetrain of his message was about getting everything to this point of resolution. Simplicity is about stating the point in an economy of words, and don't oversimplify a, a difficult subject, but make your points simple, even if they're complex, even if the subject is hard, and you make them sticky. All right? Second, stickability practice. Unexpectedness. The element of surprise. Unexpectedness. This helps the point stick, helps your teaching stick. Flannery O'Connor, I like her writing. She was a Southern Catholic novelist. She has a great line. The novelist with Christian concerns will find in modern life distortions which are repugnant to him. And, it's, and you can apply this where, where she says novelist put teacher. And his problem will be to make these appear as distortions to an audience which is used to seeing them as natural. And he may well be forced to take ever more violent means to get his vision across to his hostile audience. When you can assume that your audience holds the same beliefs you do, you can relax a little and use more normal ways of talking to it. When you have to assume that it is not, then you have to make your vision apparent by shock. To the hard of hearing you shout, and for the almost blind you draw large and startling figures. 
Now, can we think of an example of that? We can. Jesus' prodigal son story is an example of that. Because the, basically what that story says to the religious leaders to whom it's told is it's worse than you even thought. Because I not only take the people you reject in with me and I'm with them, I run down the road for them. I shower them with affection. I, 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 I save them from the shame and the scorn that you would heap upon them. Because in that culture, if a, if a kid did what the prodigal in that story does, if he came back home, if he dared to do that, there was actually a ceremony called the Ketsatsa ceremony where the community would take out uh, in a jar burned corn and nuts and break it in front of the person before he can come in town and say, in unison, so-and-so is cut off from his people. This is why the father runs out there. He spares him the shaming ceremony that was going to be his if he got near town and people saw him because of what he did to his dad. Jesus goes an unexpected way. And that's really a lot of the, uh, the parables are, are like that. When I say unexpectedness in our context, unexpectedness is how do I generate interest and curiosity in what I'm teaching? Ask questions. That's one good way to do it. Tell stories. But how do I generate interest and curiosity in what I'm teaching? Are you really going to stand in front of people and say to them, My, what I want to talk to you today is about is the golden rule. Matthew 7, 12. Jesus says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Are you really going to spend the next 30 minutes just regurgitating that? Just telling people, this is what we really need to do this. We really need to be like this. Are you going to show me why I need to do this? Tell me about what it looks like successfully, but also tell me what the struggles. What am I going to meet with in myself and in others? Because Jesus' ethic, as summarized in the Golden Rule, when you compare it to other great teachers of history who've said similar, the difference between the way Jesus puts it and the way they put it is Jesus' ethic transcends self-interest. He says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. He doesn't say, don't do to others what you wouldn't want them doing to you. That's the way the other teachers go with that. Jesus' ethic transcends self-interest. In the doing, I, I may not get done well in return, but I, I still do to the other what I would want done to me, whether the other reciprocates that or not. Unexpectedness is about trying to generate interest and curiosity in what you're teaching. Again, questions are really good. Asking leading questions. I love the 30s for, uh, 30 for 30s, ESPN. Uh, there's uh, a few of them that will start off, what if I told you? That's a great question. What if I told you? And then something that follows that is either outlandish or strange or I'm not sure it maybe kind of throws you off balance. What if I told you, and they've got Alabama and Auburn coming to the line, what if I told you you had to choose? You, know? you couldn't live in this state and not make a choice between these two teams. So you're, you're put in the, in the middle. of It's like you're the ball between these, all these 300-pound people coming together here in the middle. You're, you're instantly put into the conflict. That is a good way to generate interest and curiosity in what you're going to talk about. 
stories. Particularly if you teach children, you've got to use stories if you teach, if you teach kids. It's, I said last week, it's painful to watch people teach children and try to get across some concept without any kind of story. And so, so let's say you tell a story, and the story is about this little girl, and she's getting out of her bed because she hears something in the hall, and she's getting out of her bed, and she walks over to the door, and she opens the door. Well, the older kids are already out in the hall. They already want to know what's going on in the hall. But the younger kids, if you've got a room of different age kids, they think it's a pretty big deal just to get out of bed because mommy and daddy say don't get out of bed. And so why is this little girl getting out of bed? And can she reach the doorknob? You know? And so you've got even the kids in the room are in different places in hearing the story. Sometimes if you're teaching the Bible to adults, as a lot of us do, in the interest of unexpectedness, try a different translation. Use the message. Use the Living Bible. Take a very familiar passage and, and say, now you, you know, and this is the ESV, and let me read it to you in the message. And you'll get language. You'll get words in that that will, oh, wow, that's, that's really pretty vivid. That's always uh, usually pretty helpful. Or uh, you can find something like this. This is a book called Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes, Removing Cultural Blinders to Better Understand the Bible. These are, it's written by two missiologists. Their experience teaching around the globe, how Westerners think things mean what they mean, and then you go into other cultures and you realize people that don't have a concept for that or it didn't really actually mean that. This is uh, Psalm 23. This is a literal back translation of Psalm 23, as understood by the Kumas tribe of Laos, which is a, a Pacific Island nation, Asian nation. The great boss is the one who takes care of my sheep. I don't want to own anything. Now, this, this is how they understood the missionary to be teaching Psalm 23. And in their language, back to English, here's how they rendered it. I don't want to own anything. The great boss wants me to lie down in the field. He wants me to go to the lake. <laughs> he makes my good spirit come back. Even though I walk through something the missionary calls the valley of the shadow of death, I do not care. You are with me. You, you, you use a stick and a club to make me comfortable. You manufacture a piece of furniture right in front of my eyes while my enemies watch. You, you pour car grease on my head. My cup has too much water in it and therefore overflows. Goodness and kindness will walk single file behind me all my life, and I will live in the hut of the great boss until I die and am forgotten by the tribe. Now they go on to say that the forgotten by the tribe part, that when the Kumus people of Laos first encountered Psalm 23, it terrified them. Because to die and dwell apart from the tribe was a fate worse than death. And Psalm 23 says, I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Where is that? And, and why won't I be here? Because they had an ancestral idea of that. So I, I wonder sometimes if, the, if we ask people to, to give us back, you know, the teaching, if it wouldn't sound a little bit like the Kumus version of Psalm 23. The abuse of unexpectedness is novelty. 
So each one of these has their abuse, and this, the abuse of this is novelty. By novelty, I mean trying to come up with something clever so as to essentially entertain your hearers. Or because you don't like the traditional understanding of a text, you don't like what the text says, you try to find an alternative, you want the newest hot take on it. We want to generate interest and curiosity without resorting to novelty or any kind of gimmickry. The third sticky practice of seven, clarity. Be thou clear, as clear as you can be. An old preaching axiom says, a mist in the pulpit is a fog in the pews. And what that's trying to communicate is pretty obvious. Your goal as a teacher is not just to help people understand, it's also to help guard them against misunderstanding. This is the part of it we usually don't discuss. Obviously, we want people to understand. But a lot of times in teaching, we don't give as much thought to how could they possibly misunderstand what I'm saying right now? You have to head them off at that pass. Now, this, again, this doesn't sound fair to us. And I'm in your corner as the teacher, as teachers. But where people misunderstand, the fault is mostly with the teacher. It's on us. I just haven't been clear, as clear as I should have been. I might have thought I was being clear. And I, through the years, I've had... I've had feedback, there's feedback and there's pushback, feedback that says, I didn't understand that. And as I was saying earlier, some of it is because I was, I was operating on a, a, a different plane, a different level. I was uh, teaching, you know, a 12th grade level to maybe somebody's not thought about it beyond an 8th grade, and that's, that, there's no insult being conveyed in that, it's just by sake of pure analogy, you wouldn't teach your younger classes stuff you're teaching some of your older classes because they haven't, they haven't moved that way, that kind of thing. But I've uh, had feedback through the years where I realized, you know, I wasn't clear about that. And if, once my ego settles down, I then realize, yeah, yeah, that, that's right. I wasn't, I wasn't very, I could be clearer. And that's on me. Now, clarity is not the same thing as precision, to be precise about this. <laughs> clarity is not the same thing as precision. What happens when you get too precise is that you end up incorporating too much detail. And unless you're teaching a technical kind of subject or a technical kind of skill, like technical writing, for instance, too much precision is just going to bog down the learning process. The more detailed you get, it's usually pretty boring. You can be clear without being overly detailed. And in fact, if you're teaching and you want questions, sometimes it's good to leave a little bit out just to see if, you're, uh, if your learners are, are with you. And the abuse of, of clarity is digression. So this third sticky practice, clarity, it's abuse, is digression. This is the rabbit trail. This is saying the thing that just pops into your mind, hasn't been thought out pretty well. Or you start a thought and you don't know how to finish it. Or you start your thought with, I probably shouldn't say this. Just know when you say that, that everybody listening is thinking, 
then don't. But we jump right on in there. I probably shouldn't say this, but. Now, sometimes you do that just to, you're having fun. And, but sometimes people do that and then later on realize, you know, I probably really shouldn't have said that. <laughs> probably would have been better if uh, that had been swallowed instead of spoken. Digressions get us off the main road. And occasionally there's some really nice scenery off the main road. But we also lose track of the main point when we digress, and so can the learners. And so you've got to be aware of that. Sticky practice number four, credibility. Credibility. Establishing credibility. Is it apparent that you know what you're talking about? Not that you're an expert. Very few people are experts at anything. We're experienced, but do you know what you're talking about? Some of the best teaching I heard came from uh, a guy named Kevin McCauley. This was last year. You don't have a reason to know his name unless you have a child in addiction. Kevin McCauley lives in Hawaii. He's a medical doctor. We got to hear him in Utah. Our oldest son did his uh, drug treatment in a facility there, a 90-day. And Kevin McCauley comes in for the parent uh, time when the parents come from all over the country there to see our kids. And Kevin McCauley was there to speak also to the patients, not just the parents, about the addicted brain. And not only is Dr. McCauley an authority with incredible content, he is himself in recovery. He has instant credibility when he stands up to talk. Now, he's a marvelous presenter. He's got a DVD series on the addicted brain, and it's tremendous. I learned a ton from Kevin McCauley, but he was a Navy flight surgeon, his story, who began uh, taking the drugs himself, got court-martialed for it, showed us a picture of the prison cell he stayed in, I think in Leavenworth, and um, he gets the medical side of addiction, but he also gets the personal side. He gets the personal cost side of it. He said every morning for the last 20 years, the Hawaii Board of Medicine, I go on their website and I register that I'm clean. Every morning. He said they, they, have, to, they have to do that. And he said there's plenty of times I think, you know, I've been doing this long enough, sobriety, I don't have to do that. And he said that's when I realize if I don't, uh, I'll give myself permission to go right back to it. His credibility made what he said all the stickier. It was really good content, really good stuff. I remember Caleb was sitting there with us when he got done, and Caleb said, this guy gets it. I said, yeah. Yeah, and I'm, and I'm not where you are, Caleb, uh, uh, being experienced on it, and, and I, I get it. He's helped me understand what's going on here. I mean, just shed light after light after light. If it's apparent to your hearers that you, that you seem to know what you're talking about, that's credibility. Again, you don't have to be an expert, but credibility turns hearers of you into learners from you. And that's, that's what we're looking for. The abuse of credibility is posturing. Posturing. That's the abuse of credibility. Posturing. It's acting like I know what I'm talking about, but I really haven't studied the subject, or I've only studied one side of it. I've only studied one 
one group's idea, or I've not had an experience, and I'm going to speak about it anyway. Now, that can get a little, you know, you can say, well, what's Paul doing writing about marriage when he was never married? Well, um, there are things that we speak, we don't always have to have the experience to speak to something. There are things about which we're not entitled to have an opinion. I, I can't do the math in, in certain equations, and I don't, I don't, I'm not entitled to have an opinion about those things. I'll tell you another thing posturing is, or, or what posturing becomes, an unhealthy interest in offering correction. If you have that, please put it to death before you teach any more. Or begin teaching. All of us have probably had the experience of listening to someone teach. And it just sounds like so much axe grinding. If that axe on the grinder could speak. This is what it would sound like. This guy's lesson. An unhealthy interest in offering correction. Their real lesson is to tell us why that group of Christians over there are idiots. I've sat through this. You've sat through this. Sadly, I've given a couple of these in my past. Probably more than a couple. Teaching is going to be corrective at times. It will be. But teaching that goes at someone rather than to someone is teaching that will not fairly represent an opposing view. And that's discrediting. Rebuttal is not persuasion. Just because you rebut something doesn't mean that you've persuaded those who've listened to your rebuttal that you necessarily have a different or a better angle. Merely rehearsing your problems with a certain view or practice is not giving people a better alternative. And in the church, we're really bad to go critical on something that we disagree with, don't like, think is silly or heretical. And I've watched teachers through the years. Again, I've done it myself. I've, I've been repenting of this for a while. And, you know, if the person who really held that view was sitting there, they... They wouldn't be able to recognize themselves in our critique because our critique is one-sided or it's unfair or it caricatures them. You've got to watch doing that. Fifth practice for stickability. Engage the emotions. Engage the emotions. This may be controversial. It wouldn't be controversial with a capital C. It would be Lowercase c, controversial. But humans are not primarily thinking beings as much as we are feeling beings. I, I believe that. I wouldn't fight you over it if you think differently. I'm not saying that we're not thinking beings. I'm saying primarily what humans are is feeling beings. That's primarily what we are. Jamie Smith brings this out really well in a book, You Are What You Love. He's also got a book called Desiring the Kingdom, which had been really formative and he writes about how when we say things like, you are what you think, he says it, that motto reduces human beings to brains on a stick. Uh, even if you say you are what you believe, or you know, the most important thing about you is what you think about God. Well, there's practices too. I mean, it is important what we think about God, but we're not just brains on a stick. There's a practice of Christianity. There's a, there's a following through. On our, on our faith. And so. The teaching that sticks best. Is teaching that makes you feel something. 
Now we're getting to the abuse of this. Abuse of this, you can already anticipate, is manipulation. It's playing the emotions. But at the very least, you're, you're not trying to bypass feelings or emotions because these are God-given. They're susceptible to the fall as anything about us is. But they're still there. If you speak to the heart as well as the mind, you're speaking to the whole person. That's really what we want. Again, the abuse of emotions, I just mentioned, it's manipulation. In manipulation, I'm trying to play on your emotions because I want a certain kind of response from you. I want the tears or I want the anger. I want the outrage. Now, you may have come from a church background that engaged in a lot of that. That was what you were formed in. Very emotional appeals, a lot of emoting, emotionalism, however you want to refer to that. If people didn't get worked up, then teaching wasn't really happening. The way we know teaching is happening is because we're getting really worked up. I've had some fascinating discussions with my MCUTS classes. My MCUTS classes are predominantly African-American leaders and lay people in churches around the city and surrounding area. MCUT stands for Memphis Center for Urban Theological Studies. We've had some fascinating preaching discussions about, you know, in my church, when it gets as quiet that you can hear a pin drop, people are engaged. And a lot of times in their church, when it's raucous and people are dancing in the aisles, the preacher is touching hearts, man. And I said, you know, I could take the sermon I preached in my church that I had good feedback on, bring it to your church on a Sunday morning, and they think, that is the dullest brother I've ever heard in my life. And your preacher could come to my church and preach that sermon that you were dancing in the aisles from, and they think, why is this guy angry and yelling at us? What is he screaming about the love of Jesus for? You know. Uh, so there's some cultural differences. I, funny story. It wasn't funny in the moment, but I, I've it's, it's been funny in, in memory. When I was a doctoral student at Beeson, we had a class in which each student in the cohort, and a doctoral cohort is about six to eight people. These are not big. You, you go through in the first year and the third year you finish, and it's about six of us that, that go through together. And so you get to know each other pretty well. And we were assigned a class that was geared for people who've been preaching to brush up. And, and peer review helps you, you know, where have you got bad habits? What are you not clear on? This was the benefit of, these are fellow preachers. Very intimidating preaching to other preachers in the room. But because it's a small group, we were surprised when one guy in our cohort, he's a pretty mild-mannered guy, when it came his time to preach... There were all this ranting and yelling. He raised his voice. He started to sweat. He would walk up to us like this and he'd, you know, shake at you and come back and then he'd do it again, you know, and he, he's going way up here and he's, and we're, we're six of us, you know, <laughs> sitting there like this and the professor. Well, that's what he grew up in. His fever pitch was how you teach. If you're going to preach, this is what it has to look like. It has to emote. 
It has to arrest. It has to confront. It has to be prophetic in that sort of way. That's how he understood it. We had an interesting conversation with him afterwards about it. Our professor was a very gracious guy, and he sort of brought it up with, you know, does, uh, does the audience matter, you know, that you, you're, when you're in front of a, you know, would you preach this way really if it was all professors in here and students? And we, we had an interesting discussion about that. But know your audience. Know who's in front of you. Who are you speaking to? Are these people who are well-educated or not? Are these people who um, know the Lord, know their Bibles well or not? Sixth, sticky practice. Stories. Number six, stories. The sticky practice of stories. This one's pretty obvious. Tell stories. I say it's obvious in that we all like stories, but there are a lot of people who think if the teacher uses stories, he's somehow wasting the time of the hearer, especially in a church context. I think that's a little sanctimonious. Yeah, you can tell stories that are going nowhere and doing nothing, but a good story that really illustrates the point, oh, that can be your best friend. That can really make the teaching there's been plenty of times in sermons where I've told a story and it really made the sermon. And you can tell afterwards by what people say, they go back to that story. And then you think, well, I wish I had one of these every week. And you don't. But when you do, you really try to deploy them well. If you read widely, that's a good practice for a teacher. That will supplement your teaching well. Read widely. Read things you're interested in. If you're reading what you're interested in, you're going to gain from that. You'll get stories from that. Authors and storytellers know their way around the world, and the great ones know the road to the human heart. Jesus communicated frequently by way of stories. They're called parables. Parables put truth in tension. It looks like, I mean, parable, the word actually means to throw down two things side by side. And sometimes those two things wrestle and sometimes they lock arms and they walk together. Jesus was really a master at that. And if he wasn't giving parables, he was speaking in word pictures. The kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like. It's like two sons. It's like a landowner. It's like a merchant who finds this really valuable thing and he's going to go out and liquidate all of his assets to have it because he knows that this thing is worth more than all his assets Anyway, etc. and so on. If you can put it in a picture for hearers of you, then they can become learners from you. And that's what you want. People will say, I'm a visual learner. And you know, really we all are when you think about it. And again, think proverbially here. Think of the Proverbs. The Proverbs so often in an economy of words use an image. Go to the ant, you sluggard, you know. Don't just tell me laziness is a poverty of ethics. You can tell me that, but you can also illustrate it. And you can illustrate the alternative. You can help me see, and that's really what a good story is aimed to do, is to help you see. It's so the penny drops, it's so the nail is driven into the wood, 
And there's this sense of, okay, I get it. That's that now I understand. That's what metaphor does, a word picture, an analogy. If you read widely, if you cultivate paying attention, if you become observant of people, if you ask, you know, what's really going on here when you're watching something, listening to something, if you reflect on your life experiences, the stories will emerge. They will. And ask the Lord as well. You know, Lord, help me to illustrate this. Help me to find those instances from my life and others, things I've read. Help me to recall. And he'll help you with that. But what you're thinking is, you know, how can I put this in a picture? Here's the concept. Here's the truth. Here's the thing that I want to get across. Is there a way I can picture this? I've had the experience many times in preaching, and it's great, of watching heads snap up when I start to tell a story. It's just great. Or I'll use a word picture, and people will suddenly jump up, you know, like, hey, he's telling a story. You know, this, this suddenly got interesting. It's just fantastic to watch. And stories, the reason we love them if you want to get into some of the philosophy of stories now, is that you're not just telling somebody else's experience. You're, we're looking at the world through their experience, through their, their eyes. And we're also listening to stories to find ourselves within them. So when you listen to a story, you think, you know, how would I have done in that situation? Gosh, I wonder if I would have done that. And sometimes I can tell by the way the congregation audibly responds that People are realizing, wow, that's unique. That's exceptional. I don't think I could have done that. Or laughter. People are identifying. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'd have done the same thing. That would have been me too. Or that's me. That's how I'm like. What if that were to happen to me? That's what we're thinking about in a story. In a good story, good word pictures, they help you connect with your, te- with, with your learners as a teacher. A lot of times a story will humanize the experience. It'll put skin on, as it, as it were. And the teacher who connects with hearers of you eventually finds that they become learners from you. And that's what you want. Seventh sticky practice is repetition, which I've been trying to practice even as I've gone through this. Repetition. Repeat the main point. Don't do it as a drumbeat, but weave it through. Just work it through. Keep, keep kneading it like it's bread dough. Keep working it through. Someone once characterized this guy's preaching for me as he said, you know what listening to him is like? It's like listening to one key on the piano getting pounded over and over and over and over again and, that, and calling that music. <laughs> That's the most vivid picture. And I go away from that saying, Lord, let me never be the pounder of the one key. Listen to my music. You know, dun, 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 dun. He was basically saying the guy has no variation. It's just this stream of consciousness. And you just feel like he's just sort of vomiting truth on you. And you're going away saying, you know, what did you eat? Uh, what, <laughs> what, what, where did this come from? 1 John, if you want a biblical example of repetition, 1 John, the letter of 1 John, great example. When I was preparing to teach 1 John a few years ago, sometimes I'll I'll experience anxiety before I go into a book. 
I want to go back to the book I was just in, you know, and let's just redo that. But I'll have this anxiety, and I really had a lot of anxiety before I taught First John because of all the repetition. I remember thinking as I read, I'd read through it a few times, <laughs> how much can I say about love for weeks on end? Just every other verse, love, 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 and more love. And I thought, oh, this is going to be brutal. But what I ended up realizing is that repetition is less a way of reinforcing a point. Now, it does that. In repetition, you're reinforcing the point. But you're also, it's more like you're holding something valuable up to light. Almost like, you know, a diamond. If you took a diamond and you held it up to light, you'd get all these refractive colors and, and sparkles. And that's really what you're doing when you're, when you're repeating something and it's not just this drum beat or this mantra. Do you have this? Yes, yes, I've got it. You've said it 38 times. You're wearing them out, your, your listeners. But if you hold it up to the light and you say the same thing, but you're, you're giving a little different angle, a little different shade, a little different nuance, a little different meaning, still saying the same thing, just helping them see it from different angles, you're helping the stickiness of what you're trying to teach. And so I ended up titling that study in 1 John, the gospel is relational hygiene. That was my idea for love. Love is about relational hygiene. And we went with the uh, uh, lather, rinse, repeat cycle. Uh, you know, took something out of everyday life. And the abuse of repetition is redundancy. Redundancy would be your abuse of repetition. Old vinyl record, a lot of you remember record players when it would get to a, a scar in the record, it'd skip over and over and over, say the same thing. That's redundancy. And what's going on when you're being redundant is you really don't know how to develop your point. Uh, and so you just keep repeating it, hoping that the truck and the trailer are going to link up here at some point, And I'm going to get some, some torque out of this. But right now, it's not. And so I just keep repeating the point. Now, that's, that's a bad day at the teaching office, as it were. But that's what's going on when you're being redundant. You just really, you're not sure how to develop the point. You've got a good point. Or you know what the text says, but you're really not sure how to get it to life. And so you've got some more time here, and you just you, you digress. You don't know what to say. You get deer in the headlights. You just become redundant. As to mechanics, and we'll finish with this. Here's a, um, on the, this is a, called lesson plan sample. And then on the back, what I want you to look at is on the back. So look at this as these come around. There is. What was the abuse to stories class? Did I not? There must not have been an abuse. Yeah. I didn't give an abuse to stories because I guess there is not one. Using too many? 
Nancy says the abuse is using too many. And we're going to go with that, Nancy. That's a brilliant insight. Thank you very much for that. Using too many. Just being a story. Just being a storyteller for the sake of being a storyteller. I think there's enough. Anybody need any more of these? Look on the back of it. Let's just run through this. I'll, I'll do the back part, and then I'll tell you what, how to use the front part. This just a, this is a, these bullet points are just a rubric. So as you're preparing to teach, and this assumes that you're teaching a passage of Scripture, by the way, or a subject, but most of us, we're taking this class in a church, we're thinking about how we would teach the Bible. Do they hear a clear direction for the lesson or a clear purpose statement or a big idea or ideas? Have you stated that? Does the worst listener, and you, not that you always know who that is, but every room's going to have the worst listener. That's the person who's the most distracted, most on their mind. Maybe they can't help, maybe they're on medication. Sometimes that happens. Uh, they're drowsy, they've had a bad week, bad weekend, etc. Does the worst listener at least have a shot, a chance at knowing what this is about? Do they hear the scripture? Handled rightly, the text of Scripture. So that's, that's incumbent upon us. We're going to teach the Bible. Do we have this understood well? And that gets into context and genre. What kind of Scripture is this? Last week I told you about the Psalms. You know, you could teach the Psalms in a word-by-word word kind of, well, this word means this. And this. You've got to get into the Psalm. You've got to get in the emotion of the Psalm. Whether it's a jubilant praise, whether it's, Lament, you've got you to engage that. And we talked about emotion tonight. That's part of handling the scripture rightly. It's not just, do I get the gist of this? But do I know how to aim the gist into real life? Do they hear the gospel? Don't underestimate the need for people to hear the gospel. And not as just this rote mechanical transaction with God. But do they hear gospel truth? Can I access Jesus in your teaching? Can I get there? So anytime I'm teaching anywhere now, I, I want to try to bring Jesus into the, into the picture. Not as like, you know, chasing a squirrel. The answer to every Sunday school question is Jesus, you know, especially in the younger classes. You don't want to force him in there. Think about in your preparation, you know, how is Jesus the example of this? How is Jesus the hero of this and make references? Do they hear fresh insight, angles on the truth? This gets back to stories, analogies, word pictures. As you read, make notes in your Bible. You're reading something. Person has a really good angle on Galatians 5 on the fruit of the spirit. Go right in the margin of your Bible. See so-and-so, their book, page number, because at some point you're probably going to teach that and you're not going to remember that you read that in 2011 unless you've got the note there. I've been doing that for years, but this, this is part of my profession, so I, in some ways I have to do that. But if you can do that as a, a teacher, a small group leader, whenever you're opening the Bible, if you can look in your margins, see I've got some books and things I've read here that Help me understand this. 
Now, you'll be the better for that and your hearers as well, your learners. Do they hear a teacher worshiping the Savior while teaching? You say, well, what does that look like? How does that look like? Well, this is, um, this is that quality of the Spirit that we know and experience when we know we know it when we're when we're experiencing it. We can't necessarily say what it it looks like or spell it out. But what I want to have happen when I'm teaching is that people see a love for the church. They see a love for people. They see a love for the truth. They see uh, that I'm enthralled with the Savior, and that's not going to come out in equal proportions and amounts every single time. This is more of a qualitative kind of consideration. I put this here just so that you have it in mind. So you, you hear it stated definitively, even though it's kind of hard to put a definition on it. This is a quality that we want in our teaching. We don't want to think so much about the quantity. The quantity is what you get into here on the front page. This is more like the quality kind of stuff on the back page. So quantity, this is mechanical, but what this is about, this lesson plan sample, is you take the, the shaded part at the top of the grid here, specific lesson aim, you want people to know something, you want people to feel something, you want people to think something, you want people to do something. That's, that's your four-cylinder engine that this, is, that this is working from. This is your drivetrain. The specific lesson aim is your big idea. It's what you're trying to get across. So we've got no feel, think, do out there. But really what you're after here is what am I really wanting to say? Essentially, the 2 a.m. question, what is this about? That's your big idea. So the specific lesson aim, and you can use this as a guide if it's helpful, if it's not. Some of you, we've all got different teaching experience in the room, but... Some may not have much at all, and this might be a good place to start. So if I was teaching Psalm 117, which you're going to do, the two-minute lesson, I would study those two verses. There are only two. I would look at the words. I would meditate on it, pray through it, read it, maybe memorize it. It's, it's a quick enough text to memorize. Then I would do some study. I would consult some scholarship. I wouldn't do a lot of that. For a two-minute window, for a 45-minute window, some of the, how much scholarship you consult is how much time you have. But, and some of us just like to consult scholarship. It's just part of how we go at it. So look at some scholarship. Have some basic commentaries. There's some in the church library here as well. I've got some. And I would, I would generate a, what do I want to say about this psalm? Here's essentially what I'm going to try to get across. And that's my big idea. Now you can have more than one big idea. You can have two. You can have 17 big ideas. But you're going to observe that text. You're going to think on that text. And you're going to come up with a big idea. Now time, if you had a 45 minute window to teach, you may want to say, well, my intro is uh, basically, you know, what are the first things I'm going to say? What's going to signal the beginning? Am I going to put an outline out there? Am I going to give a story? Am I going to ask questions? What's my intro going to be? That's what goes there. And the time might be, I'm going to take six minutes to develop my intro. 
gives you something to shoot for, keeps you on track. The approach is going to be, how, how do I surface interest? We talked about all this tonight. This is how it kind of grids out. How do I get people curious and interested in this? I might do that in my intro. I might combine my intro and my approach. Don't take this because it's mechanical that you have to hit every one of these. It might be that your intro and your approach are one and the same. I'm going to ask some questions. I'm going to tell this story. It's a life experience I've had. I'm going to think about it so that I don't ramble. I'm just going to tell the story. I'm going to be prepared ahead of time. And I'm going to then ask some questions. I'm going to give people time to answer the questions. And so I'm going to budget that in. If I've got like a 45-minute window, and I've got a two-minute window, I'm not asking any questions. Right? Discovery. How do I direct their attention to what God's Word has to say? So we're going to look in Scripture and we're going to discover something of what God wants for us from His Word. He speaks to us from His Word. So the discovery part is where I'm dealing with the text. I'm dealing with the Word of God specifically. How much time do I want for that? 15 minutes? Depends on the passage. Is it a familiar passage? Is it a hard passage? Is it a hard saying of Jesus or Paul's? Is it a controversial text? Is it a text from Revelation where who in the world knows what this means? This is the discovery part. And I'll budget some time for that. And then response gets you into application. Some people want to step you through application. Do this, this, and this with this teaching. Other people say, here's some things to consider as you think about what this looks like in practice. This is the what this looks like consideration. You can make suggestions. What do you want to do with this teaching? You can spell it out real clearly. You can give people five things to do. Boom, 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 boom. This is where you deal with the so what. And you actually deal with the so what up here in the intro as well. The so what on the front end is you're basically saying to the cynic in the room, if you listen and learn, this might be the benefit that you get. The so what down here in response is if, you, um, if you've listened and, and any of this has, has moved you, then maybe you move in this direction. This is, this is what this might look like in practice for you. This is what it's looked like for me. This is what it's looked like for my best friend who did this with this truth. So if you took a subject like hospitality, you might be able to speak from your own experience. You might have to borrow other people's experience because you haven't had... You're so much your own, but you've said, well, I've, I've watched what my neighbors have done. It's been really cool. What, listen to what they did. We drove up and there were all these cars and, and suddenly everybody's engaged. They're picturing your neighborhood. They're picturing the cars. They're picturing the, the people who don't look like the couple that lives in the house going into the house. And they're with you and they're going, wow, I wonder if I could do that. You know, Because you're telling a story and you're engaging. And then you're going to take them to the text. You're going to be in Romans 12, practice hospitality. And that's going to be your, your text. You're going to say, well, what are some ways we can do this? What are some ways you've seen hospitality be practiced? And you give people a chance to, and don't get nervous when there's silence, because there's going to be silence, except with kids. With kids, you're going to have to rein it in. You're going to ask a question, you're going to get, <laughs> and they get, 25 of them are going to start talking. I love teaching Awana for that reason, because they're just so 
energetic and we have a lot of fun. I teach down there a couple times a year and I always tell a story. Always. Always. Did I say I always tell a story? And the summary is just what are you going to conclude on? Be well. May the Lord bless this to your life. You going to tell a story at the end? Are you going to and sometimes you run out of time. It happens. And that's okay. But how do you want to conclude this? Do you have a conclusion? Do you just kind of leave it? Do you just I had a professor in college that the end of class was this. It's been real. And he would want that was his, that was his conclusion. If you've ever listened to Steve Brown teach, you think about that. Amen. And that's it. He's done. No matter where you were, I'd, I'd love to have that. I'd actually love to adopt that, but it it's, it'd be such a pirating. Because there's so many times the preacher, you go, oh, where do we end? Where do we land this plane? I still feel like I'm over the sea, and this is not a seaplane. <laughs> I need a runway. There's too many trees there. So how do you conclude? And then evaluation uh, is just the, you know, ask somebody in the class, how did that, that hit you? What could have been clearer? What did you not get? What was, um, what was good? And you'll find both in, because we can always improve. I could improve every sermon I've ever preached, every, the best sermons. You know, and, and you, you, it's fun on Sundays when you get the person who walks up, that's the best sermon you've ever preached that I've ever heard, you know. And you appreciate that. But uh, you just think, you know, I can't repeat that. <laughs> I mean, you're not going to have the same experience next Sunday. It's impossible. It's a different sermon. It's a different subject. I'll be in a different mood next Sunday. The whole thing. It'll be raining. It's just that moment. We enjoy that moment when we have it. And so um, it's been real. That's my, that's my conclusion. Any questions, thoughts? Next week, we're going to talk about the book, so there'll be discussion next week. These are, I'm done with lecture, and we'll talk next week, but we'll, we'll engage and interact together on this. Again, Psalm 117 is your assignment. Be thinking about it. You got to October 17th to come up with two minutes in Psalm 117. Do it. This is not a mandated thing, but uh, if you're game, yeah, we'd love to hear from you on that. All right? Thank you.